Well, as we continue in our worship, we're going to turn to God's Word for the reading and preaching of His Word. I want to invite you to stand and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. When your pastor Mark asked me to preach, he asked me if I would preach on something to do with union with the Lord Jesus Christ and its implications. I gave him five or six different texts and opportunities, and this is what he chose of those. Uh, So this is partially your pastor still shepherding you, uh, even though he's quite a ways away now. Let's hear the word of the living God to us as his people from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. My friends, I assure you that though the grass withers, And the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you have just heard is God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray for us as we continue to meditate on this passage. Father, your word is an incredible gift to us, your people. Herein we see who you are, who we are as sinners before you, our holy God, and what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be reconciled and redeemed. And you show us how, in dependence on our union with Christ and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can now live as your people. Father, this is a rich passage that unfolds what it means for us to walk in a manner worthy of you in response to your great grace. And Father, we need your help as we consider this passage. We need your Holy Spirit to do his work of illumination as we look at the words on this page. And we pray, Father, that you would move in us. There may be those here today who are yet to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And I pray that you would bring converting grace as your word is preached, that there would be men and women, boys and girls, who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ in believing faith today. And for those of us who are already united to Christ, we pray that you would help us to mature in Christ, that more and more you would beautify us so that the image of our elder brother might be seen in us, especially in the way we live together as a church community. So Lord, please bless this time. Make it worthwhile. Make it transformative. Only you can. And so we would ask nothing less in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably all heard of churches that split. It's a very sad thing when a church splits, when a a group of believers, sometimes two, sometimes three in the same body, go their way. You're probably also quite aware that usually churches don't split over really important doctrinal matters, usually not at the local church level. It'd be nice if they were splitting because one group didn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and the others did, and they realized those were incompatible over something over the centrality of the gospel, but it's usually quite petty things that churches split over. Real stories, you've all heard, and it's true, there are churches that have split, and when they renovate or build a building, and some people don't like the color of the new carpet, and one group gets mad and goes their way. Churches have split over whether we should sing traditional hymns or contemporary music, 
What a terrible thing to split over the style of music. There's churches who have split over the church staff either being shaved or not shaven. Seriously. The kind of coffee used out there. There was one church that split because there was a clock that had prominently been in the sanctuary and it was removed and one of the group got mad and left. True story, as far as I know, this was related by a pastor who was a pastor in rural Oklahoma in a charismatic church and one faction of the church did not like the pastor and they wanted to break off and start something else, but they didn't want to leave because they'd invested so much in the church building and so they decided to do something which is quite unusual in church splits. It was a church that was kind of like this, traditional style where you have a center aisle. And so what they did is they put partitions in the church. And the group that stayed with the pastor would meet on this side on Sunday mornings. At the same time, the other group would meet on this side. Now, these were charismatics. They're not quite Presbyterians. Maybe it would have worked with Presbyterians, but not with charismatics. As one would give testimony and get one side laughing, the other would try to speak louder and get more laughs. As one side began to speak in tongues, the other side would try to speak in tongues louder. And eventually this pastor just had enough. He just left. And he's the one that related the story, so we don't know how the story ends, but I can assure you it did not end well. Friends, there is too much division in Christ's church. It's a disgrace to the gospel that we profess. It hurts our Christian growth. And it's a terrible witness to the watching world around us when we preach a gospel of free reconciliation to our Creator, and yet we can't live reconciled relationships to one another. Sometimes lack of unity isn't an active thing. People don't actually split, but it's an actual passive lack of care and concern for one another and ignoring one another. Scripture wants us to realize that one of the gifts of the gospel in our union with Christ is that as we share Christ together, we are brought in this union together, this bond together, that our, our Savior makes us one. It's a gift that God gives us, and he calls us through this passage today to work hard in reliance on his grace to maintain and live out and flesh out that unity that is the gift of ours in Jesus Christ. And so I want to spend some time thinking about what our sermon title is, Our Savior Makes Us One. And I want to follow the flow of this text and give you three challenges as we think about what we have been freely given in Jesus Christ together, how to live in response to that. So let me give you the outline if you're taking notes. From verse 1, we're going to look how we are to live out of the gospel. We are to live out of the gospel in other words, the gospel impels our life. Our second point will come from verses 2 and 3, that we are to live as one with other Christians. To live as one with other Christians. And then verse 4 and 6, longer point, at least title, live as one to reflect our triune God's salvation. We are to live as one to reflect our triune God's salvation. So let's start at our first point. How do we live out of the gospel? What do I mean by that? Well, notice in the text of Scripture before us, it starts with a, a therefore. Paul says, I therefore, which means he's drawing a conclusion from something he's just said. Sometimes a therefore can refer to just the previous statement. Sometimes it can refer to a huge chunk of material. And because of a, a large shift in his letter to Ephesians, I believe when he says, therefore, he's referring to the everything he said before in his letter, the entire three chapters 
If you study Ephesians and you try to look for imperatives, commands, you'll find very few commands other than the word remember in the first three chapters of Ephesians because he's not giving commands. He's reminding the church of God, this is what your triune God has done for you. This is what God in Christ has done for you. Here's how he's made Jew and Gentile one. Here's how he saved you by his grace. He's done this. He's done this. He's done this. And then when you get to chapter 4, he says, therefore, and now the imperatives start to come. Because this is what God has done for you in Christ, this is how you now live by his grace. First of all, as a church community, and then in every area of life. Paul's grammar, his structure, even to this letter, reminds us of the grace foundation that we have in the Christian life, the grace-driven theology of the Bible. In the Bible, God comes to us, to sinners in his grace, and he redeems us freely. He doesn't say, do this, and I'll save you if you do it good enough. He says, you can't save yourself, so I'm going to do everything for you And I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to count you as righteous. I'm going to adopt you as my family. But I'm not going to leave the power of sin to continue to reign over you. I'm going to give you a new power in your union with Christ so that you can change. You can begin to grow. You can begin to put to death sin. You can begin to reflect more and more what you were created to do. It's always been the case. God loves us. He shows his grace, and then he changes us. Even before sin was in the world, even in, I think you are doing covenants, perhaps I came in the very end of Sunday school, looking at biblical covenants. Even in the covenant of works, which we call, when Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin, God gave them every opportunity to succeed. A perfect world, a wonderful relationship and marriage. Everything was great. He put his blessing on them and then said, do this and live. They had every opportunity. His grace, in one sense, came first and then response. Or think about the Ten Commandments. I have a trick question here for you. We read the Ten Commandments as worship. What is the most important part of the Ten Commandments? Think about it. The most important part we read, and I'm glad you read it, it's not actually the Ten Commandments. It's the prologue. God coming to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. God didn't send Moses with a list of Ten Commandments to those in Egypt, his people in bondage, and say, you know what, here's the list of ten. I'm going to come back a year from now, and if you've done good enough obeying that, then maybe I'll redeem you. No, he redeemed them by his grace, brought them out to be his people, and said, now that you've experienced my redemption, here's how you are to live and maintain the freedom that I've given you, the freedom that is found in me. And so Paul, in this letter, he's showing us that dynamic To look at it in verse form, turn back just a couple of chapters to a very familiar passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Many of you could at least roughly quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's something we celebrate in our Reformed circles. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, it's just crystal clear as can be. We're saved not by what we do, but what God has done in Christ, which we received as a gift through faith. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not just, hey, that's great news we can celebrate. It goes on to say, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created, and notice, in Christ Jesus, in our union with Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
God saves us by his grace, and then his grace begins to transform us so that we can, if you go back to Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That calling is to be part of God's people. That calling is to experience salvation in Jesus Christ and now to live like you are in Christ. Now, before I go further, I just want to speak to you if you're not yet a follower of Christ. Maybe you're a kid who's grown up in a Christian home and you're beginning to evaluate, do I really believe this gospel that my parents have taught me? Or maybe you're an adult and you're just exploring the Christian faith and you're here today to say, is this biblical gospel, is this Jesus, is it true? And it's really important for me to highlight if that's you today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that the gospel, the Christian gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is bringing his kingdom in is not advice on how you can save yourself. Every other religion in the world is advice on what you can do to save yourself. And in contradistinction, the gospel is not advice, but it's an announcement, first of all, that you can do nothing to save yourself and that God has done everything in sending his eternal son to take on flesh, to obey the law of God in the stead of those who would trust him, to die an atoning death on the cross for the sins of those who would trust him, and to raise powerfully. And if you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and counted righteous, and adopted, and be assured of eternal life. And so if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and there's any confusion about that, I just want you to know today that God, through his word, is offering you his son right now. And I urge you to flee to him. I urge you to flee to him with empty hands and say, I have nothing to offer you, but I'm going to take that grace that you're offering. I'm going to take Christ, and I'm going to lean into him and believe into Jesus because the gospel is all of grace. And friends, for those of us who already know the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to see that God has not only dealt with the penalty of our sin, but he has dealt with the power of our sin. Before we were in Christ, we were enslaved to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and now we can begin to live differently. We can live out of the gospel. So what does that look like? Look at this at this principle he lays out in verse 1. He's going to get very specific, but he lays out a general principle. What is the heartbeat of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has clinged on to Christ, clung on to Christ, and trusted him as their Savior? There's this desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul says, therefore, in light of what God has done, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Before you get into the specifics of what it means, you know, fleshing out the Ten Commandments in daily life, as we read, there's a general principle of my heartbeat is to, as our catechism says, glorify and enjoy God. A desire to love him because God is at work in his church. Look back just a few verses at the end of chapter 3, this wonderful praise to God, this doxology, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work, where? Within us, the church, those united to Christ, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Friends, if you are a believer, at various points throughout your Christian life, you have a burning desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to glorify him in every aspect 
of your relationship. And that principle in one sense is, is the foundation in one sense more important than the specifics of how we do that. Now, the specifics are important, but they must flow out of that. Uh, if you don't know, I have five children, three girls and two boys, and I'm often trying to help the boys learn to use their strength well with their sisters because the tendency in their sinfulness is to, you know, the, the sister comes and hits or does something and they resort to violence, and that's probably not too light of a word at times. Just this week, my uh, 11-year-old daughter was messing with my 10-year-old son who's quite bigger, and he turned around and slapped her in the cheek, and I had to resort to discipline. Now, very often, I will say specific commands like, don't hit your sister. But in my best moments of gospel parenting, as I'm talking through it with them, I get to a deeper principle, and especially when they were really younger, I would say, why has God made you strong? I don't know, Daddy. To serve and protect your sister. God has made you strong to use your strength to serve and not to hurt. As a Christian, are you using your strength to serve your sister because Jesus is precious to you? Now, my, my, my sons sometimes will try to do other things, and, you know, they come and they pull the sister's hair, and it's like, well, you didn't say not to pull their hair. And I'll come back and say, well, I'm still disciplining you because you know the principle. Are you using your strength to serve and protect your sisters? Similarly, our first desire as Christians is we want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I just need to say something. I need to say that if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, yes, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, and yet that desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is never present, you need to really check whether you're actually united to Christ. Because the gospel says there's a new power that is at work within us if we believe in Christ. We're united to Christ. Now, as Christians, trust me, I know it's, it's up and down, right? We're, we're, we're prone to leave the God we love. There are many days where that desire is not there, maybe weeks. But as a Christian, you're going to, at some point, you're going to be called back to that, maybe in public worship or in your private devotions, and you're going to repent and say, Lord, I've not been walking in a manner worthy of you, and I want to. And the Christian life is one of repentance and faith and repenting because of that. But we need to see that God and his grace is transformative. We are to live out of the gospel in every area of life. Students, in your studies, you are called as a covenant child to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Workers, those who are out in the workforce, you are called in your vocation to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay-at-home moms, you are called in your parenting to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ as you care for your family and your children. As we go on social media and look on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you use, you are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ with what you do and where your heart goes as you go through social media. When you have your me time, your recreation time, you're called to recreate in a way that brings glory to your God who has saved you by his grace. That is to be the consuming passion of the man and woman, boy and girl, united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people who are called to live out of the gospel. And Paul urges you this morning. This is not a preacher urging you. This is the word of God, the Apostle Paul, through the inscripturated, inspired word of God, urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, that's the general principle. Where's the very first specific that he attacks or focuses on as he talks about what does it mean to specifically do that? 
And it's quite significant as we get to verse 2 and 3 that the first place that is to take place is in our relationships together as the body of Christ. Look with me at verse 2 and 3 as we look at our second point, to live as one with other Christians. Notice his language in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Now, Paul is very verbose. Uh, In his epistles, he just packs things on. So let me just give you the nuts and bolts of what he's saying. Verse 1, his main command is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he's giving us two means by which we do that, or two ways which we do that. In verse 2, it's bearing with one another in love, the first way. The second way in verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Just grammatically in the Greek text, that's just what he's driving forward. Here's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You bear with one another in love and you maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's think about what it means to bear with one another in love. You think about what bearing with someone means. It means that it's not always easy. You don't bear with someone, you know, that you just enjoy being around and things are easy. You know, if you're dating or you're married here, you think about the first time you met your, your dating partner, your spouse, you know, it wasn't bearing with them to have a three-hour conversation. Like, that was one of the joys of it. You could, you could talk forever. You, you always wanted to be in their presence. It wasn't, now, it may be now, <laughs> sometimes in long relationships, hopefully not. But initially, there's just a joy and a delight in doing things. I was thinking about when I first wrote this sermon. I've preached it once in, in Australia when we served in Sydney, And do you know where I was when I was writing this sermon for a retreat we were doing? My toes were in the sand at a place called Freshwater Beach, one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Cliffs on the side, beautiful sand, clear water, rolling waves. I just surfed for a couple hours. This was kind of my pastoral off day, but my study day. And it was just glorious. And I was thinking about, boy, this is sure not bearing with anything. This is great. But bearing with something reminds us that there's struggle There's differences. Think about the differences that would have been in the church in Ephesus. If you read Ephesians, he's talking about how Jew and Gentiles are now one in Christ. Think about the church potluck when you've got the, you know, the Gentile who brings the bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers. And the Jewish person is almost appalled because their whole life before Christ, they they never ate pork. They're like, oh, he's going to bring the bacon again to the, the church potluck. You think about slaves and free, you might have men who were very, very well kept, they studied philosophy, and then you had slaves who their whole life was farming, and when they got together, they wanted to talk about the crops and the rain, and the other guy wanted to talk about Plato and Aristotle. You can think about how the tendency to look down on, think about all the differences, think about all the sin, because God saves us where we're at and transforms us, but it's slow, and we all have weird sin struggles. We all have personality quirks, and they did in Ephesus. I don't know all the differences at Zion, but I know there's different upbringings. There's some people who love, you know, homeschool and some who love public school. There are those who feel the freedom to glorify God in drinking alcohol moderately and those who feel in their conscience they shouldn't drink at all. There are those who are extreme extroverts and want to talk and spend time together. There are those who are extreme introverts and want a lot of alone time. There are people with different sin struggles in this congregation, and everybody with some sin struggle. There's personality things that sometimes rub you the wrong way, and it's only appropriate to say that we're to bear with one another because it's difficult. There's a realism here that we are to bear with one another. And notice the manner. It's not just a putting up with. Notice the way he describes this bearing with one another in verse 2. With all humility, 
with gentleness, with patience. It's not a condescending, oh, I'm better than you because I have this conviction. Why can't you get your stuff together? It's not a a roughness. Gentleness is the idea of power under control. And so maybe in leadership, you're gentle with those who are slowly coming along in their sin and putting it to death. When you're engaging with one another, you're not so overtly frustrated about the differences, but you're patient. You're kind with one another. In other words, you're not just putting up with each other. You're loving each other. You're esteeming one another. You're finding ways to serve with one another, to see the good, the creational and redemptive good in that person. And look at the session. Let's look now at the second relational aspect of this worthily walking as we bear with one another. In verse 3, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to do everything we can in reliance on the Holy Spirit to maintain the unity. Notice that it does not say create. Did you notice that? To maintain something is that it's already been created for you. In Australia, we lived there for almost four years, and we had a, like a 60-year-old rent house we were in just 15 minutes from the opera house, a beautiful place. Um, but the owners were very careful. They made a, a list of all the things we had to do to keep it up, and they would send an inspector every six months to make sure that we were maintaining the house well. It was not our house. We were just living there. We just had to maintain it. Friends, unity is not something that we have to achieve and finally get there to create. It is a gift of the gospel. We are one in Christ. We just maintain it. We live out the implications of it. We give ourselves to it. And we are, notice verse 3, we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That means we think about it. We pray for it. If you're a church member here, one of your five membership vows was to maintain the peace and purity of Zion. You made a commitment to it. How often do you reflect on that? How often do you think, how am I maintaining the peace and purity? And again, this is not just a, you know, I'm not going to fight with people. (laughs) It means I'm not going to be just passive and sit back. I'm actually going to engage with people. I'm going to welcome people. I'm going to serve people at every opportunity. I'm going to make them know that they're loved and welcomed. I'm going to care for them in every way because I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit number of years ago, uh, with Mission to the World, where we serve in Asia, every four years they do a, a, what they call an area retreat, where they bring all the missionaries together from Asia. Um, and it's like a reunion for especially the kids, the missionary kids. And we served in India for a number of years and got kicked out. And so when we were in Australia, uh, this was going to be the first area retreat where a lot of the people they'd served with in India were going to be there. And so a month leading up to the retreat in Indonesia, my kids were like, how much longer? Hey, Dad, can I pack this? What are we going to do here? And there was just this budding eagerness to think about it all the time. It was constantly on their mind to engage in that. And Paul is telling us when we think about our life together, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so I just need to ask you, is unity in this body on your radar? Are you praying for it? Are you laboring for it? Again, not to create it, but to maintain it. Are you thinking about how can I encourage this person in my small group or in my church or in my Sunday school class? This person's hurting, they're sick, can I take them a meal? They're going through this in their life, maybe they just need to have some coffee and and just share and pour out their spirit or their heart to me. Do you treat the members of this church like you would treat your biological family if they were struggling? 
Those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit are not just not fighting, and that's part of it, but they're caring for one another. They're looking out for one another because they know that they're one together in Christ. There's also the sin part that's found in verse 3. Notice he says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and notice this last phrase, in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. What breaks peace? Sin. If we spend enough time together, we're going to sin against each other. It just happens. We're sinners. And the more committed relationships we are, the more time together, we're going to sin. But there's gospel remedies for that. There's talking to one another about it. There's confessing our sins to each other. There's granting forgiveness. There's working through things. Sometimes we maybe don't think there's any real sin between us, but there seems to be a distance, and we just kind of ignore it and go the other way. And God wants us to be proactive in talking about it and making sure we work through things together and apply the gospel together. So I do, I want to ask you, is there a member of this church that you're out of sorts with? Is there someone that you used to be really good friends with and now you kind of politely say hi in the halls or as you see each other, but you don't care for them? And maybe there's no real sin between you. Maybe there's just this distance and you're kind of wondering, maybe you need to have a conversation because you're so impelled by your unity in Christ that you want to make sure that things are right. You want to love one another well. You want to be engaged with one another. You know, I love that Zion does the Lord's table weekly. Because every week that gives you an opportunity to examine, am I right with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I living in unity with them? Who do I need to go to and make things right? You see, when Paul, and the inspired Paul, writes, he says the very first place as you live out of the gospel is in your relationships with one another. You are to live as one with others. Now, in the rest of our passage, he's going to give us a further motivation And he's going to root our unity in the Trinity's saving work on our behalf. And so our third and final point is to live as one to reflect our triune God's salvation. What we're going to see in verses 4 to 6 is that he highlights every member of the Trinity having a role in the saving work he does on us. And so we're called to reflect that. Notice the word one. You probably noticed that as we read Let's just count together how many times the word one appears in verses four to seven. Verse four, there's one body, that's the first time, and one spirit, number two. Just as you were called to the one hope, that's three, that belongs to your call. Verse five, one Lord, that's four. One faith, that's five. One baptism, that's six. Verse six, one God and Father over all. Now, you don't have to be a specialist in hermeneutics to get the point, right? (laughs) We are one in Christ. Because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we are one, and we are to live in light of that. Notice verse 4, he highlights first the role of the Spirit. I think because at the end of verse 3, he's just mentioned the Spirit. He says there's one body and one Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we are united by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We are joined to Christ The Holy Spirit has done that for every true believer. And so we're one because of the work of the Holy Spirit in uniting us in one body. Look at verse 5 as he focuses on the incarnate Son. One Lord, that's Jesus Christ. One faith, that's the gospel, or putting our object of our faith in Jesus and what he's done in his life, death, and a resurrection. One baptism, 
baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and really the triune name. Because we share what Jesus has done, we have a common Lord, a common faith, a common baptism. We're one. I don't know if you've ever been in another country or spent significant time in another country. You know, we have 330 million American citizens, and when I walk down the road or as I'm in a place, I don't think, oh, that's neat, you're an American citizen, me too. But after six years in India, sometimes I would be somewhere, and I would meet someone, and I'm like, oh, you're an American. And we'd have this bond, and we would talk, and i think, hey, this is pretty neat, we have this connection. I was in Florida last week at this uh, ministry conference, and I met one couple from Texas, and I felt this automatic, oh, you're from Texas, oh, I am too, and they were members at Park City's Presbyterian, and we had so much time, talk, fun time talking about Texas stuff and thinking about our identity together. Well, Paul wants to drive home the fact that because we are all united to Jesus, the one Lord, our faith is the same, we have one baptism, we are one. And it's not just a commonality, it's something that's happened to all of us. And then look at verse 6, as he focuses on God the Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the first all here is probably referring to Jew and Gentile, because he spent time in Ephesians laboring to show how Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. But we can apply it to all of us that if we believe in Jesus, we all have God now as our Father. We're adopted into the Trinity and God the Father, the one who has eternally existed as Father in relation to His Son, is now our Father. We're adopted. And it says He's over all of us in His authority. He's through us in His working in our lives. He's in all of us in His presence in our lives. We have the same Father who loves us deeply. If you have multiple kids, I wonder if your kids ever ask you, Dad, Mom, which of us do you love more? My kids ask me that all the time. And I literally, no joke, I was sitting around at my breakfast table a couple days ago, and my 14-year-old daughter said, Dad, which of us do you love more? And she's kind of joking. She knows the answer by now. Three years ago, we adopted a girl from China. And as we were getting ready to adopt, my kids kept asking, especially the younger one, Dad, are you going to love Hadara as much as you love us? And, of course, it was theory at the time, but I said, yes, I am. I'm going to love her just the same. And then we adopted Hadara, and she came into our family. She's been in our family for three years now. I love her just as much as I love my biological children. In fact, I felt like I bonded to her quicker than my biological children. I love her just the same. And now the question's come, Dad, do you love Hadara as much as you love us? And I can honestly say, yes, I love her just as much as I love every one of you. And friends, the good news of the gospel that unites us as one is that we have the same Heavenly Father, and He loves each one of us the same. He loves you, Christian, to the same degree that He loves His eternal Son. Because you are a man, woman, boy, or girl by faith that's united to Jesus, and he loves you that much. And as you think about how you relate to one another, you have to remember that you're relating to someone who is equally loved by God as you. And Presbyterians, God loves the Arminian Christians just as much as he loves the Reformed Christians. He loves the gospel-believing Methodists and Anglicans and Charismatics just as he much as he loves the Reformed Christians. I know we think he loves us more because we feel like our theology is better, but you know what? He loves us the same. He loves us in Christ. And how important that is to remember as we relate together. We have the triune God at work in us equally. We're all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We're all united to the one Lord Jesus Christ. We all have God as our Father 
And we are called, we are urged by the Apostle Paul to lean into that, to maintain the unity that we have so that we may glorify our triune God by reflecting the unity that our triune God has as he brings his saving grace in our lives. So friends, are you? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you have in Jesus Christ by bearing with one another and maintaining the unity of the Spirit because you've experienced matchless grace in your union with the Lord Jesus Christ? You've been brought into the inner Trinitarian fellowship of your Creator. A long time ago in Africa, there was a young boy who wandered outside the village in this tall grass, and his mama couldn't find him as the day came to an end. This is a true story, as far as I understand. And it was the time of year when at night it gets pretty cold, so you didn't want to be out in the elements. You could, you could die of hypothermia over an extended time. And the tribe scattered all around looking for the boy through the tall grass, calling out his name, and it finally got so dark, and they kind of said, we're going to have to just wait until tomorrow, and they came back to the, to the village Early the next morning, even before the sun is coming up, they get together, and one village person said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's all join hands, and we're going to walk one big long line, and we're going to go through the tall grass, and we're going to have this huge chain so that we don't miss this little boy. And they did that. And after some time of searching, they found the little boy. But sadly, he died of hypothermia in the night. And his mother, as she began to wail, as she began to cry, as you can only maybe imagine what a woman would cry who lost her child, she said these words, if only we had held hands sooner. If only we had held hands sooner. Friends, may that never be said of Zion. May we be a people united in Christ, or you be a people, I'm not a member here, you be a people united in Christ, holding hands together, maintaining the unity of the Spirit, because you're so taken by the God of grace who has taken you and united you to his Son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word as a means of grace in our life. Lord, no matter how good we are at applying what we've read today, there's room for more growth. I think of how the Apostle Paul often wrote to people and said, you're doing great in this, but abound all the more. And Father, I pray that Zion would abound all the more in this, that this would be a church that is so taken with what you've done for them in Jesus Christ that they would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Lord, protect them from the evil one who would love to cause division in this body, who would love to split this body, who would love the members of this body to look down upon one another and gossip and slander one another and ignore one another. But I pray that by your grace, this would be a church where people care for one another, where they bear with one another, where they work through struggles together in the power of the gospel. Lord, let this be a church that lives out of the unity that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do that for your glory, for the good of this congregation, and for their effective witness to the unbelieving community around them and prosper and around these parts. Lord, only you can do that, but you can do that, and we ask you to do it. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen.